Our passage this morning is 1 Corinthians 13, which is probably the best known section of 1 Corinthians. It's certainly the part that's been put on the most cross-stitch patterns, wall plaques, and sunset posters, not to mention tote bags, t-shirts, and hats. Why is this passage so popular? Because it's a powerful statement on the overwhelming importance of love and a beautiful description of the nature of true love. And as we look at this passage today, I think we'll find the priority of love surprising and the description of love challenging. The chapter breaks down into three sections and a concluding statement. The first section is the first three verses. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. The first thing to notice here is that the mention of tongues, prophecy, faith, and giving shows that this is a continuation of the discussion of spiritual gifts that began in chapter 12. In fact, the discussion of gifts takes up all of chapters 12, 13, and 14, and that means that this whole chapter is also mainly about spiritual gifts. Our sermon series has been a bit out of order lately, so it's been a few weeks since we talked about chapter 12. So let's just take a minute here to remind ourselves of the context of the discussion there uh, that started in chapter 12. Here's a, a few verses from chapter 12. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. The main idea here is that there are different kinds of gifts, service, and working, but they all come from God. These gifts and special abilities that Christians are given are for the common good. God has enabled every Christian to play a special role in the church. And there's a list of gifts given in several places in the Bible, including here in 1 Corinthians, but each list is different from all the others, with only a certain amount of overlap in each list having some unique gifts too. What that means is that none of the lists are meant to be comprehensive, and we're left with the general statement that there are different kinds of gifts, service, and working that are all spiritual gifts. Paul then compares the church to a human body to make his next point. He says, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Now if the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Now, the main idea of this metaphor is that we are all interdependent on one another. Just as a body needs many different specialized parts in order to function properly, and each part benefits from the work of the other parts, the same is true of churches. We together are a body, and each of us has a particular role to play in order to benefit all of the others. I cannot be my best self without your help doing the things that God has gifted you to do. And the same is true for all of us. We need one another. God has not made us to function on our own. Chapter 12 ends by emphasizing that no one has all the gifts, and no gifts are given to everyone 
which emphasizes again how we need one another in order to be our best. But the reason that there are three chapters in 1 Corinthians about spiritual gifts is that there were problems in the church about how the gifts were being used, especially with the gifts of tongues and of prophecy. And chapter 14 is all about tongues and prophecy. And next week, we'll be exploring that chapter. And in light of the fact that these gifts are regularly practiced in other churches, but not in ours, there's some important questions that we need to answer about tongues and prophecy. So be sure to be here next week, and we'll be uh, digging into all those uh, questions and issues with that. But besides the problems with tongues and prophecy that they had in Corinth, there were problems that they had with the way that the gifts were being used in general. The biggest problem was that some people were doing ministry using the gifts that God had given them, but doing it without love for others. And God will have none of that. Here's those verse verses of chapter 13 again. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now here's the big idea of this section. Any ministry or good deed that you might do is worth nothing in God's sight if it is not done in love. Even the greatest possible use of the special gifts that God has given us is useless without love. Five examples of good deeds or ministry are given here. Speaking in tongues, prophecy, faith, giving to the poor, and physical hardship. And all of them are given their most exaggerated expression. Faith that can move mountains. Giving all your possessions to the poor, leaving yourself with nothing. Prophecy that results in understanding all mysteries and all knowledge. Even speaking in the language of the angels. Now, none of these are really meant to be realistic expressions of the gifts. They're all exaggerated descriptions of the most extreme ministries. But the point is that even these extreme examples gain nothing without love. That means that if you were to cash in your entire retirement account, sell your house and your car, and give all your money to help the homeless without actually loving them, God would look at your action and say, meh, worthless noise. If you studied the Bible in the original Greek and Hebrew, reading the insights of 50 top scholars and meditating on the scripture for hundreds of hours in order to deliver a great sermon that explains the true meaning of the passage, but you don't love the people that you're preaching to, God is not impressed. That is nothing. Giving to the poor, studying, and teaching the Bible can be great acts of service, but only when they're done in love. So that's the first section of our chapter today. The next section deals with the question, if love is necessary, then what do we mean by love? And this section gives an answer to that question by living, listing seven positive descriptions of love and eight things that love is not, defining both what love is and what it is not. So here's the passage. It says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, 
always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It's a beautiful passage. It's it's poetry. And yes, this passage certainly is applicable to marriage relationships. The love that we have in our marriages should be this kind of love. So it is appropriate that this is read and talked about at weddings. But as we have seen, the context here in 1 Corinthians is not marriage, but church. This love is the kind of love that is necessary for our ministry and service and good deeds to be valuable. This is the love that we are all to have for one another. So let's take a closer look at this definition of love. First, it says, love is patient. Now that means more than simply that a loving person doesn't mind waiting in line at the DMV. This kind of patience is what we sometimes refer to as long suffering. It's a willingness to put up with some things that are not exactly the way that we would like them to be for the sake of the people that are loved. And I think there's at least two kinds of things that loving patience calls us to tolerate. One is our preferences that are different from others. I like one way of doing things, they like another way of doing it. Because I love them, I'm patient with those who have different preferences and ways of thinking. And yes, that even applies to their political views. Patience says, other people are not like me, and I love them anyway. The second thing that patience calls us to tolerate in others is times when we aren't just talking about preferences, but when others are actually wrong, even sinful. That's not to say that patient love condones sin, but a loving person is quick to forgive and is able to distinguish when the loving thing is to point out someone's sin to them so that they can repent and find forgiveness, and when sometimes the best thing is to just let it go. The wisdom of Proverbs tells us that, quote, whoever would foster love covers over an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. And Peter, in his epistle, writes, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. You see, when when someone loves you, or someone you love does something to hurt you, love is patient. Now, because there's a danger of misunderstanding this point, I want to be as clear as I can here. The Bible does not tell us that love means allowing people to abuse us, either physically, spiritually, or emotionally. But it does tell us that not every fault needs to be confronted. The loving person exhibits long-suffering patience. Secondly, the next thing that the Bible tells us is that Christian love is kind. Kindness is seeing a need that someone has and taking the initiative to do whatever you can to help with that need. Kindness cannot observe a loved one's suffering and remain indifferent. Love compels us to act to address needs where we are able to help. Now, after those two great characteristics of love, the passage changes track and gives us eight things that love is not. First, it says, love does not envy. Now, of course, there's many things that we are tempted to envy, but remember the context here is especially about ministry done in the church. A loving Christian does not feel bad when they see others thriving in ministry, wishing that they could do the same work and get the recognition and the, and the, uh, the, the recognition that they see others getting. 
there was a time when I wanted to play the guitar and I wanted to lead, sit, worship, and sing. And so the summer after I graduated from college, I got a guitar and I spent at least a couple hundred hours practicing the guitar. I had a great job where uh, it involved a lot of waiting around for customers to come in and I was able to practice hours nearly every day. And by the end of that summer, I was really bad at playing the guitar. A couple of years later, I gave up on that dream and gave away my guitar. But a few years after that, I got another guitar. After a while, I gave up again and got rid of that one too. And then a few years ago, I bought my third guitar. I had it for about four years and I sold it. God simply did not give me any talent for music. I'm really bad at singing too. It would be just... It would be easy for me to envy Josh or Isaac or the other guys who are able to be up here and lead worship, or someone else's ability to know the right thing to say to comfort someone who's hurting. You know, I just, I don't always, a lot of times I just am at a loss in those situations, but, but those aren't my gifts. And when I see other people serving God and others in those ways, the appropriate loving response is not to envy, but to rejoice that God is using them in ways that are different from the way he uses me. But I think really when we find the biggest temptation to envy other people's service in the church is when they're doing the same things that we are best at, the same things that we feel are our gifts, but they're doing it better than us. Or they're just getting more opportunities or more recognition than we're getting for doing that ministry. And that's when we really have to show love and resist the temptation to envy. Next, the Bible tells us that Love does not boast. Again, while we might be tempted to boast about all kinds of things in all kinds of places, the primary context the Bible is talking about here is our ministry in the church. Boasting about how great the Bible study we led was or what a great time of prayer we had last night is not loving. Closer related to the idea uh, is the, the idea that love is not proud. There is a certain type of self-respect and self-pride that's healthy, but pride can also be a most unloving attitude in which we think of ourselves as better than others. Love sees the good and the potential good in the other. It does not pridefully pump itself up by putting them down. Love does not dishonor others. Showing love to people means that we show them the respect and the honor that they deserve. Now on this topic of avoiding pride and dishonoring others, I was reminded of a quote from C.S. Lewis's book, The Weight of Glory. Lewis said this, he said, it may be possible, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. That is, Lewis is saying that it's, it's possible for us to, to dwell on a little bit too much uh, what we are going to be like someday when we're in heaven and we're free from sin and we're we are eternal beings living with God because we could become prideful thinking about that. But then Lewis says, it is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. That is the potential glory of his neighbor. The more we remember the future glory of what our fellow Christians will be like in heaven, the more we will find it easy to love them and not to dishonor them. And I want to say this morning, I posted a link to an article where I found this quote on the Clearwater Church Facebook page. I encourage you to get on our Facebook page, find that article from the Gospel Coalition, read the, the full article about uh, that quote from C.S. Lewis. It's really a very interesting thing. So get on there and take a look at that.
Next, the Bible says, love is not self-seeking. Love seeks the good of the whole, not the good of oneself. This correlates with what was said about spiritual or our spiritual ministry gifts in chapter 12. They are meant to be used for the common good to build up the church. We do ministry for the good of all, not for our own good. Next, it says, love is not easily angered. This is almost a restatement of the idea expressed by saying love is patient. Love does not take offense at every offensive thing. Even when the loving thing is to correct another person and point out their sin, love is not easily angered. Most of the time, even when dealing with someone else's sin and having to talk to them about it, that can be done without anger. But here's a question. Was Jesus a loving person? Always? But did he ever get angry? Yes, there are times when he got angry. The most famous was when he violently cleared out the merchants from the temple. Love is not easily angered, but when it is appropriate, loving Christians are righteously angry. The Bible then says that love keeps no record of wrongs. It's pretty clear what this means, but sometimes it's pretty hard to do it. The loving thing to do is to move on from the wrongs that have been done to us and to keep no record of them, especially when they are wrongs that have been confessed and forgiven. The record of those things needs to be eliminated. Our natural tendency is to remember them all. Let's see, Jesus said to forgive 70 times seven times. That's a lot of times, but let's see, according to the count I'm keeping in my head, this guy's about halfway there. See, that's not love. Love forgives and keeps no record of the wrong. Love does not delight in evil. There are a variety of ways that we might be tempted to delight in evil, but in the context of ministry and church relationships, uh, the best way to see this is that a loving person does not rejoice when another person fails or suffers. There should never be that kind of, ha ha, he got what it was coming to him, I love it. That's not to say that a loving person can't laugh at people falling down on America's Funniest Home Videos, but love does not rejoice when evil things happen to those that we think deserve it. So those were the eight things that love does not do. Now it switches back to the positive characteristics of love. Love rejoices with the truth. The meaning of that phrase is not perfectly clear, but the context implies that, that it is the opposite of delighting in evil. So the idea is that rather than being happy when things go wrong for others, seemingly putting them in their place, love rejoices when things go well for them. The loving person wants the best for others and celebrates when others do well. The idea is very similar to what it says about the body in chapter 12. It says, if one person suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, sometimes we're tempted to do just the opposite, to delight in seeing evil befall to, those, uh, to someone else and feel badly when they're honored. But obviously that's not love. Love uh, is, is uh, connecting with those other people in their joy and in their pain. Next, the Bible says, love always protects. As Christians, we're meant to look out for one another, to protect each other from all kinds of harm. Most importantly, of course, that means that we should not hurt one another ourselves, but this includes doing anything we can to keep people from being hurt in any way. 
When we see that others are in danger, love says we must intervene and do whatever we can to prevent them from being harmed. It's easy for us to think about this in terms of physical protection, but really that's probably the least likely way that someone we love will be in danger of being wounded. Love protects others from spiritual, emotional, and relational harm. Love always trusts. Love ascribes good motives to others. Not that loving people are hopelessly naive, believing anything anyone tells them, but love sees the good in others and defaults to trust. We can have either a standard default to assume the worst, or we can show love by seeing the good in others and assuming the best. Love always hopes. The Bible uses hope a little differently than it's often used today. Biblical hope is a confident anticipation that something will happen in the future. Loving hope looks at others and says, you may not be where you want to be right now, but with God's help, we're going to get there. Hope says the future is bright and God's promises for me and for you will be fulfilled. And lastly, love always perseveres. Love does not give up. It keeps on loving, even when it is difficult to love. And I think we all know that it can be very difficult to show this kind of love to people, especially certain people who just uh, rub us wrong. But love always perseveres. It does not say, that guy's hopeless. I'm done trying to show love to him. Love keeps hoping, keeps persevering, even when love is hard. Man, love is a complex thing. These four verses have 15 statements describing love, and all of us find this list incredibly challenging. But this is the kind of love that we are called to aspire to. Does God expect us to love like this perfectly? No, God knows us better than that. But he expects us to aspire to it, to strive to love like this. And he helps us. In the biblical book of Galatians, it lists the fruit of the Spirit, the things that God's Spirit produces in our lives when we live in step with Him. And the first fruit on the list is love. And uh, side note here that the fruit of the Spirit is going to be our next sermon series this fall when we finish 1 Corinthians. It's going to be a, a great, encouraging, and challenging series, and I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be great uh, starting this fall. But for now... The reason that I'm bringing this up is because I don't want you to think that you are expected just through force of will to make yourself into a loving person as described in this passage. This kind of love is hard, but as we bring our lives more into line with the Spirit of God, He will help us to be more loving. And that brings us to the third section of our passage this morning. This section is a little bit longer than the first two, but this morning we're just going to focus on the one big point that's made here. And that is that love, unlike any of the ministry gifts that God has given to us, is eternal. Starting in verse 9, here's what it says. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I trained like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. 
Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Love never fails. As if the description of love from the last four verses didn't sound difficult enough, now it says that love never fails. But in the context, we can see that the unfailing nature of love is contrasted with the temporary nature of the spiritual gifts. The timing of the ceasing of prophecies and the stilling of tongues is a topic we'll talk about next week when we deal directly with that issue. But for now, the main idea of the passage is simply that they are not permanent like love is. Maybe these gifts cease before Jesus comes back. Again, we'll talk about that next week. But clearly, after Jesus comes back and sets up his eternal kingdom, we will no longer have any need for these kinds of ministry gifts, and they will pass away. But not love. Love never fails, never ceases, will not be stilled, and will not pass away. And so, Paul argues, love is superior to all of these ways that God has given us to serve him and others. Love is the main thing. Doing ministry, even ministry done in the, by the divine enabling of God himself, that's not the main thing. This fits perfectly with what Jesus said when he was asked which was the most important commandment in the Bible. And he gave us what he said was a summary of the whole Bible. He said this, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. See, love is the main thing. It's not about being a great teacher. It's not about being a great leader. It's not about serving in the church as a pastor or an elder or a journey group leader. It's not about giving money to support the work of God or to help the poor. It's about love. All of that other stuff is temporary, Paul says. Love is eternal. And then, very end of the chapter, we have the summary climax of the whole thing. And here it is. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. These are the big three virtues mentioned together a number of times in the Bible, faith, hope, and love. Each of them are critical parts of Christian theology. These are what it means to be a Christian, is to have faith, hope, and love. But the Bible is clear that the greatest is love. Now, it's tempting to kind of gloss over that because we've heard it so many times before, the greatest of these is love, but really don't. Love outranks faith. Faith is pretty important. It's a huge part of our theology and our understanding of the Bible and of what it means to be a Christian. But even in a list of all the three cardinal virtues, love outshines them all. What kind of love? The kind of unselfish, others-benefiting love we've been talking about this morning. The kind of love that the Holy Spirit produces in our lives. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, tremendous description of love that you have given us here in this passage. And we pray that your uh, spirit would be at work within us, producing the fruit of love in our lives so that we can uh, live more and more closer to the ideal that you have presented here to us this morning. 
And Lord, I pray that uh, this church will be a place where people will do ministry in love. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.